Welcome to KGNU's Morning Magazine. It's Monday, August 21st of 2023. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Coming up on today's program, teens get their news and information from social media more than any other generation. One of our high school student reporters examines the implications for media literacy. Then, CityCast Denver sits down with an urban planner to assess the feasibility of converting vacant office buildings into affordable housing. After the BBC News headlines, we'll hear the latest commentary from Jim Hightower. Then it's good old CU with Joe Uhas. At 9 a.m., Counterspin will bring us a look at fairness and accuracy in reporting. At 9.30, Carrie Wolfson will be in the Boulder studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. That's all still coming up, but first, the headlines with KGNU's Benita Lee. Denver public schools start today with some changes. According to Denverite, armed police known as school resource officers will be back in 13 high schools. That includes East High School, where a shooting incident in March prompted the Denver School Board to reverse course on moving police out of schools. The board had voted to remove SROs from public schools in 2020 because of concerns over racial profiling. Another change, DPS students, along with all public school students in Colorado, are eligible for free cafeteria meals. Almost 180 Colorado school districts are participating in the new voter-approved program called Healthy School Meals for All. It's also move-in day for CU Boulder students living on campus. The move-in process has been spread out over several days to keep traffic jams at a minimum, according to the university. They say local residents should expect area groceries and big-box stores to be busier with students picking up household goods and kitchen essentials. And for the families of new students, CU will keep them busy all week with their fall welcome family events. United Airlines and Metropolitan State University, or MSU, are establishing a partnership in an attempt to address the nationwide shortage of commercial pilots. KGNU's Ivana Levis has more. Starting this week, MSU students can join Aviate, a learning and career development program organized by the university and United Airlines. Aviate was designed to create a streamlined path to becoming a pilot. After students submit an application, they go through an interview process. Accepted students receive conditional admission to the program. Graduates of the AV program can expect to secure a pilot job with United Airlines upon completion of the program. The airline company also purchased 13 acres of land by Denver International Airport earlier this month and plans to build a pilot training facility. United Airlines is the largest private employer in the Denver metro area. For KGNU, I'm Yvonne Olivas. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold joined counterparts last week to oppose a potential merger between Kroger and Albertsons. In a letter to the Federal Trade Commission, Griswold and secretaries representing six other states claimed the merger would create a monopoly. They said the almost 5,000 grocery stores that would be affected could see unfair price changes for both consumers and local suppliers. According to the Denver Gazette, a Kroger spokesperson responded to the letter by email saying the merger would mean lower prices, higher wages, and growing union jobs. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser announced in July there will be a multi-state investigation of the merger 
in the coming months. Colorado officials tasked with fighting the opioid crisis approved a second round of funding last week for state programs. The Colorado Opioid Abatement Council, or COAC, announced several grants totaling $2.5 million in funding. The money will go to state organizations, including regional councils, county health departments, and for a school that provides treatment for teens recovering from substance addiction. According to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, there were over 3,300 drug overdose deaths related to prescription and illegal opioids between 2020 and 2022. Colorado has received over $700 million in settlement money from drug makers and pharmaceutical distributors who were sued for the nationwide opioid crisis. The first grants were announced in March. Another cyclist has been killed in a crash with a car, this time near the I-25 on-ramp at Santa Fe Drive Saturday morning. Denver police are investigating how the crash occurred. Doctors at UC Health University of Colorado Hospital have performed the first robotic living donor liver transplant surgery in the Rocky Mountain region. In a press release, the head of the hospital's transplant center, Dr. Elizabeth Pomfret, said using robotic technology means a smaller incision, quicker recovery, and less pain for the donor. UC Health says rates of alcohol-associated liver disease doubled since the pandemic and patients are much younger, between 25 and 50 years old. Pre-pandemic, most patients were over 55. The hospital claims to have the largest program in the nation for living donors who want to donate liver tissue to complete strangers. Lightning has sparked about a dozen fires across the western slope. KGNU's Jack Armstrong reports. The fires have burned about 10,000 combined acres, but so far not threatened any structures. Little Mesa, Quartz Ridge, Bear Creek, and Deserado fires have burnt the most acreage. Officials have pre-evacuated residents around the Bear Creek fire. As of now, none of these fires are close to being fully contained. The Little Mesa fire with a team of 60 firefighters battling it, has achieved a 30% containment rate. For KGNU, I'm Jack Armstrong. Sunny and breezy throughout the Front Range, in Boulder a high near 94 and a low around 66, in Denver a high around 97 and a low around 67. Wind gusts there as high as 28 miles per hour. In Fort Collins, a high near 97 and a low around 62. For KGNU, I'm Benita Lee. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm Shannon Young. Social media promotes the rapid propagation of information. For better or for worse, the question of what to believe becomes more important, especially for extremely online younger generations. KGNU student reporter Zach Thompson has more. Social media is one of those things that is hard to escape, especially for younger generations. According to Common Sense Census, teens spend on average more than eight hours a day on screens, and during that time may be subject to a lot of misleading media. Any moment that you're not entertained, it's just filled with TikTok. 
Daniel Saeb is a high school senior in Boulder. I trust TikTok and Instagram way too much, even though I know you're not supposed to. I'll say, oh, did you hear this happened without knowing if it's true or not. And I don't know, my fear is that eventually I just completely believe it and, and I don't second guess myself. But I definitely get a lot of my news from TikTok. Daniel, like many other teenagers, knows he should be skeptical of information on social media, but stops short of defining where the line is between truth and misinformation. It might just be me being defensive and saying, oh, I can't get brainwashed. I'm, uh, I'm mentally tough enough to not get brainwashed. Unlike traditional media, social media is not subject to the same laws around defamation and slander. Plus, information circulating online isn't always easy to trace to an identifiable person with a first and last name. This shift in media ecosystems has created a deep need for media literacy. Mary Butler teaches media studies classes at the high school and college levels. One of my most important tasks, I think, as a teacher and as a former newspaper journalist is to teach students about how important journalism and, you know, kind of accessing news and information is and trustworthy sources of news and information. When writing for class assignments, students often pull from online sources, some of which may not be credible. Butler assists students in navigating and evaluating the credibility of digital sources. I find myself in the position of, okay, well, let's just double check what makes this person credible, what kinds of credentials do they have, is this just their opinion based on nothing. Nonprofits like the News Literacy Project have also emerged to teach people to responsibly navigate digital media sources. The project's director of media relations, Christina Vega, shares a few tips. Some news literacy skills that you can apply are doing a lateral reading search, which means checking multiple credible sources for information, a quick reverse image source to track down the original source of an image, the News Literacy Project has also launched RumorGuard, a website led by Danny Vone, a former fact checker for Snopes. He sees what rumors are trending online and he not only debunks them, but he um, explains the skills that you can use to apply to future rumors that you might see online so that you can yourself use these fact checking skills. Countermeasures to fight misinformation do exist, but misinformation is a tricky topic. Why does it spread so quickly? Why is it so dangerous? At a recent conference hosted at CU Boulder, I posed those questions to Ethan Zuckerman. He's a professor at the University of Amherst, where he teaches public policy, communication, and information. One thing people like to say, everyone thinks they're a scientist. Everybody thinks that they're looking at the evidence and weighing it carefully. We're not. We're lawyers. We are looking for information to make the case that we already have. And that's how misinformation works. It gives us information that we want so we can advance the narrative that we want to advance. What he describes here is also known as confirmation bias. Zuckerman says this way of reinforcing one's thinking can be dangerous for a couple of different reasons. If you already have some tendencies towards white supremacy, this is giving you solidarity, it's giving you more information, it's giving you all sorts of reasons to say, this is what I believe, this is what I'm associated with. 
what if you're not inclined at all towards white supremacy? What this is doing is telling you that this is not a safe space. So if you're a person of color, if you're Jewish, if you're a trans person, all of these things are saying, this is not a safe space for you. And if you speak up in this space, we will shout you down or attack you. Right now we're a year ahead of the next presidential election. So how do you think all this echo chambers and all this hate speech, how's that gonna influence the election? So if you talk to academics like me, as we're heading into this next election, we are waving red flags and saying this could be very bad and very, very dangerous. In light of the risk posed by misinformation, Zuckerman says it's important to know how to build a healthy community both on and offline. That includes being aware of your support network and interacting with people with multiple points of view. This can include simple exercises within classrooms. High school student Will Rossman says the teacher of his AP English Language and Composition class each week would assign the class a news article to read and discuss in groups. Being able to discuss it with the teachers as well as the whole class um, and really get other people's views um, from people that you can actually see and interact with and have a civil debate about was um, really good. Having the opportunity to discuss current events pushed Will and other students in his class to come prepared. Christina Vega of the News Literacy Project says media literacy education is key to counteracting misinformation. Misinformation and disinformation, um, part of why it's such a big challenge and why it's so dangerous is because uh, people spread it. And so we want people to spread news literacy skills to combat that. In 2021, the Colorado State Legislator passed a bill to mandate media literacy in K-12 schools. How the curriculum takes shape is still a work in progress. For KGNU, I'm Zach Thompson. Downtown Denver has a lot of big, beautiful office buildings that are empty. Simultaneously, the city is facing an ongoing shortage of housing options, particularly affordable ones. Which all leads to one big question. Could some of those vacant office buildings be converted into apartments or condos or some kind of office-shaped domicile? The answer is yes. Kind of. CityCast Denver host Bree Davies and producer Paul Caroli sit down with Brad Siegel, urban planner, real estate economist, CU Denver professor, and Bree's former boss, to talk about the potential for a vacant office-to-housing pipeline and the future of downtown Denver. Brad Siegel, welcome to CityCast Denver. Well, thank you, Bree, and I'm thrilled to be debuted today. <laughs> so, Brad, when we work together... I feel like you here kind in of, this office in the office we're in off where of we're Colfax, sitting on right beautiful now. Colfax Avenue. <laughs> you loved being in the office. You loved when we were all in the office. Is that still true? That's still true. In fact, there were days in 2020, 2021, I was the only person in this building. <laughs> Probably the whole block. <laughs> Maybe the whole block. Absolutely. But you were still here. I, you know, I'm I'm a boomer that is in that habit and didn't give it up. Huh. If you're detecting some undertones of uh, nuance here, it's because we're talking about 
a big topic here. This very office underutilized like many others here in Denver. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about. What, what can we do about it? Can we maybe make it into housing? So where I want to start is a piece of data from this New York Magazine story that came out a couple weeks ago. It said 70% of New York's commercial real estate needed to be either redeveloped, repurposed, or demolished because there's basically no demand for ugly old buildings in bad locations. <laughs> Brad, do you know what it's like here in Denver? What's the equivalent? Is it 70%? That's like, that was, that shocked me. Yeah, no, that sounds like an overstatement. So in terms of repurposing, I think there's going to be more repurposing than converting. And repurposing is updating these office buildings so that they'll attract workers. A lot of them were not built with amenities that people want today. And then, of course, the issue of conversion. How many of these can we convert to residential? Because we've got a housing crisis. Yeah, that's the piece that I think we're really curious about is those residential conversions. Is that feasible? It is, but there is nuance in that. So architecturally, office buildings have changed format uh, over the last hundred years. And the easiest buildings to convert are uh, pre-mid-century, 20th century office buildings. And the reason why they're easier to convert is be before the 1950s, office buildings were built to have windows, to have air, and also to have light. And then we invented air conditioning and we invented fluorescent lighting. Mm -hmm. and, and we so, invented the conference room with no windows. <laughs> so yeah, so that's what changed office building design was in the 60s, oh. 70s, 80s, because we now had air conditioning and fluorescent that's lights. You have these large floor plates, which are great for offices, but they kind of suck for everything else, including residential. And is that when most of Denver's office buildings were built then? Is that post-war period where they kind of got well, that's, different? That's where Denver's going to be challenged because most, particularly in downtown Denver, most of our pre-1950 office buildings have already been converted to residential. Really? Yes. Hmm. There was a lot of this activity. This wasn't new. There's a lot of activity over the last 30 years in terms of residential downtown. But Denver does have a high concentration of buildings that were built uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. There was an oil boom at the time. A lot of money flowed in here from Canada to build those buildings, and they are the most difficult to convert moving forward. What makes it so hard to, beyond something like natural light being not there, and yeah, what, what would make a, a 70s office building hard to turn into housing? Well, one is floor plate. They're large floor plates, and that's because of the air conditioning and the fluorescent lights. And when you say floor plate, you just mean the plan of the floor or the layout or the, the size of the floor so okay. if you go to the 10th floor in an old building there may be 15,000 square feet and it's narrow because there's windows and it was engineered also for for an office environment that doesn't resonate with people today so it was engineered for cubicles and for corner offices and and all of that and these these buildings built in that era built in the 70s 80s 90s are incredibly expensive to retrofit for residential. So for example, in New York City, where, where, where they can afford to do this, they're actually carving out the centers of the buildings of that era to create windows and air, Atriums essentially and creating a donut. I mean, think of uh, Republic Plaza downtown, which is the tallest building in Denver. It's a big square, gray building, tallest building. Imagine putting a donut hole through that thing for 58 floors to make it 
habitable. So that's that's incredibly expensive and can happen in a New York and and maybe some of these high price markets. It's going to be a while before that can happen in Denver. Why is that? Why is that? Why is it more expensive there? Is there no is there not enough potential profit for the developer here or like well, does the market well, it, not it's have it? It's not it's not so much that's more expensive there. It's it's because the housing market is more expensive there and they can get more for rent. So as as bad as our housing market is in Denver, uh, it's not bad enough that it would be right, exactly. appealing so, to developers. So, so, so this is where the economics here for the next few years, there's going to be an interesting dance because um, we have this, um, this, this astounding affordable housing crisis, and then we have this supply of buildings that are largely empty, and one would think, oh, let's, let's just use those. The, the problem is the, the supply of buildings doesn't match the demand. The demand is for more affordable units. But the supply being these newer, sort of antiquated now, they're only 40, 50 years old, but you can't do a lot with them. Because of the expense of converting them today, you're going to have a limited market. You're going to have limited demand of who will want to live in a high-priced corner of an office building. What you're saying is like it's too expensive to create housing out of these buildings because retrofitting them takes so much money that you would need to charge more money to make it worth it for a developer to turn it into housing in the first place. So does that mean Denver will be left with a bunch of that era building that are just empty? Um, what do you In the near term, yes, but at least my best guess of, of how this could all sort out in the next few years. And it's going back in time a little bit. So in the 80s, I used to work in uh, economic development in downtown Denver. And the 80s was a time of overbuilding and then an economic collapse. And downtown Denver was able to regenerate and rejuvenate in part because values of buildings fell precipitously back in the 80s. And when the valuation fell enough, that allowed people to come in and do different things. So I would expect that in many of these buildings that are difficult to either lease or retrofit, you're going to see their valuations fall now over the next several years. And as those valuations fall, they'll hit a sweet spot where it makes sense for someone to come in and do the retrofit. Yeah. So, so I someone I, will see potential. Yeah, someone will see potential. And and the other thing I'll say is this is a national phenomenon. So architects all over the country right now are mobilizing around this. They're they're trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we retrofit these buildings? And it may not just be for housing. There are also ways to retrofit these buildings to make them better offices. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see some of these buildings, they create suddenly rooftop gardens or they shave off the floor and convert it into some wonderful lounge and common yeah, area. Some charming amenities. Some charming amenities. down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So going back to this office conversion is this potential idea for something that we could do to provide housing. Do you see that being something that like our new mayor should add to his portfolio I mean, we, we of know ideas? he's working on it. We know he's working on it. It's something he said he's interested in. Of office conversion. Uh, yeah, do you think he's that's talked about it, yeah. A viable housing I, option? I think I think until I think in the near term it's going to be tough until these valuations drop. But I do think there's going to be an opportunity in the next 3 to 5 years as this all shakes out to identify buildings and or lots that um, maybe the city could yeah, acquire? that maybe the city could acquire or urban renewal authority still exists 
Um, it's actually done some good things in the last 20 years <laughs> after it destroyed half of downtown. So um, that, that's going to be another important thing. That's going to be a different mindset. But are, are we going to be able to wrap our heads around that, hey, downtown's actually going to need some help here over the next, at least the next five years? I, I'm very optimistic. I think we're going to end up with a better city. I think we're going to end up with a better mix of uses down there. I think we're going to end up with amenities that actually we want to go down and see on a regular basis. Uh, but I do think it's going to take at least five years for all of that to shake out. And then maybe, who knows, another five, ten years to realize. Paul, thanks for joining me. Thank you, CityCast. Enjoyed it. (laughs) You just heard an excerpt from CityCast Denver, the local Denver daily news podcast. Learn more about subscribing to the podcast at denver.citycast.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for today's Morning Magazine. I've been your host and producer, Shannon Young. Benita Lee produced the headlines. Thanks to Yvonne Olivas, Jack Armstrong, Alexis Kenyon, Zach Thompson, and the CityCast Denver crew for their contributions to today's show. If you'd like to comment on something you heard on KGNU, you can leave us a voicemail at 303-447-9911. We play the messages back on Tuesdays during the Morning Magazine. Stay tuned for a commentary from Jim Hightower. Then it's Good Old CU with Joe Uhas. That's just after the news update from the BBC.